Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Living Hope Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information about our church, please visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com. So in marketing, one of the the key things or, or kind of the ideas in marketing is that you create a need and then you fill a need. Uh, and then when you do that, people will buy your product, right? Uh, the guy that I, I learned this from uh, worked with um, uh, for a while and uh, the company that he used to work with, I think it was a financial company and they had come up with the phrase Freedom 55, which is really kind of clever. And it, it revolves around this idea of you know saving enough money so that you're able to retire by age 55. And it's, it's kind of, I mean, one, it just flows well, and it's short, and it's concise. But it also implies that until you're retired, you're not free, right? Like you're still in bondage or slavery to work or whatever, or that kind of thing. And so for you to experience um, freedom, you know, freedom 55. And so if you invest with us, and then we'll manage your financial accounts and, and that kind of and so it's been kind of interesting to reflect back on just, you know, the products that get sold and that kind of thing. Like, I, the slap, I think it was called the Slap Chopper. You guys remember that thing? It was like a circular thing with, like, knives and, like, you could hit it and it, you know, and it just did the best job ever of, like, your, because, like, we had one of those things. And I remember, like, I don't know if it was a stiff spring or what, like, I'd hit it, but it was, and then I, and then it was just pounding with the fist and thinking, the guy on the TV, like, just, this was way easier for him. Like, this is not any good. Um, one, of the, one of the, kind of this whole idea of create a need, fill a need. Uh, one of my favorite stories, there was, I, I think Joe had gone to um, uh, Norwex, Nor- right? Like, they make, like, you know, washcloths and that kind of thing. And, they're, and, like, they're just the best. And, like, they're antimicrobial. And they just, like, massage your pores and just like all these all these things right so at one point in the sales pitch to show you just how good these things were the lady went and smeared butter on the mirror and then wiped it off with the rag in like one sweep whoa you know and i love it because who spills butter on a mirror like, in what household do you have, honey, I spilled butter on the mirror. Do you have that Norwex thing? I'm sorry, it was the kids. You know, like, at what point did, like, their marketing team at Norwex HQ sit around and be like, you know, American housewives have a problem that I think we can resolve. Butter on the mirror. I, You know, so that, that yeah, that one always kind of cracks me up. I remember there was... A tire commercial, I don't even know if they still run this ad, um, I don't know if it was Michelin or, or who, who it was, but the, the commercial had a picture of a tire, it was kind of on its side, and I don't know, it was like floating on, on a road, and then in, in the middle of the, the tire, they had, you know, they had a, a video clip of, of a baby sitting in the middle of the tire, and then the phrase was, because so much is riding on your tires. Ooh, that's good, right? Because I thought... I was just going to buy a tire because mine were bald. But now I learn that if I want to be a good parent, 
who saves the life of their child, I will buy these tires. Right? So, Paul is going to kind of really almost follow a similar pattern in the book of Rome, uh, Romans. He's going to, I mean, in marketing, it's create a need, fill a need. Probably more appropriately, we would say he's going to recognize a need. I mean, it's not one he created. It, it's there. He's just being honest and candid and forthright about it. But first, he, he's going to recognize this need. He's going to create this need. And then from that, he, he's going to fill the need. And so um, he's going to tell us early on in Romans how, how sinful we are, how hopeless our situation is, so that eventually, later on in the book, he can tell us how awesome Jesus is. And so, you know, chapter 1, Paul is really going to lay into the Gentiles or, or, or to the heathen, right? Like those who don't worship God, who would say that they have no God, they're, they're really going to get laid into chapter 1. Chapter 2, Paul is going to lay more into the, the Jews. And so this is more the, almost like the religious hypocrites or those who think that by their good, their, their good behavior or, or their family history that they somehow have special standing with God. And then chapter 3, Paul is going to tie it all together and clarify how we all need Jesus. And so really, it's going to build up until kind of this, this you know, chapter 1 and 2, really their theme verse Kind of a popular verse, Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But before that, he is unpacking all have sinned. What this means is that at some point, either this week or next week, uh, you should be feeling uncomfortable. Um, You know, if we're honest with what the Bible says, uh, if we're honest with ourselves... Like some part of this, whether it's now or next week or or later on, is just going to lay our sin bare. Some sins are going to get named specifically. Some are going to be more generic. But with a little bit of self-reflection, you should be able to find yourself somewhere in these first two, three chapters. And so this week, next week, whenever, your time cometh. Paul begins with a greeting. If, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open up to, uh, to Romans chapter 1. Um, kind of the first half is his is introduction, and then the second half he, he starts to unpack this idea. If you feel uh, comfortable writing in your Bibles, I'll give you a couple things to underline. Um, so Paul begins with an introduction. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scripture, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you introduce yourself to someone you don't know? Or how do you introduce a friend to to someone else and and they don't know each other? It's kind of interesting. I I was reading a book on church, and and in the book he, he was kind of talking about different contexts and how we, we tend to introduce ourselves differently based on where we're at. So in the urban context,
people tend to introduce themselves or they will introduce a, a friend based on either like job or role or responsibility. So they'll be like, this is Bob and he's a banker down at wherever, or he's a lawyer, or a, a teacher, you know, or he works for the city or that kind of thing, right? There's some reference to, uh, to role or job or position. And so in your urban context, that's how people are introduced. In the rural context, we tend to introduce by family connection. You know, this is Bob, you know, Jim and Nadine's boy, right? You know, Julie's sister, you know, like, and he roomed with so-and-so. In college, you know, they, they live at Ted and Sally's old place by the old 40 that Uncle Bob used to farm. You remember that one? You know, and then if they don't know, it's like, well, maybe they know the second cousin or the third, you know, and then we just kind of keep going down the family tree. I, neither is right, neither is wrong. Both of them are, are kind of comical in, in their own way. Um, it's interesting in, um, in public speaking or in sermon delivery, this is actually a, crit, a, a pretty critical part as well, too. How do you introduce yourself to an audience you don't know? Pastors that are in larger churches where they don't know each person individually really have to establish that personal connection um, every week. And, and so you find a way to introduce yourself you know, you establish a relational connection or you try to find something in, in, that you have in common, something relatable. Because the more that people trust you, the more likely they are to listen and to believe what you have to say. So we actually found um, with Trek, you know, we would have guest speakers in sometimes several a week. And we noticed how important it was for the person to spend quality time not only introducing themselves, but introducing their love of Jesus. And, and, and or, or their, like their ministry uh, kind of history, and that the more that they did that at the beginning, the more their words were received later on. So Paul does a similar thing here. He, the first sentence, he identifies himself a couple different ways. He calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus. Actually, the, the word on that would actually be more akin to slave. Uh, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, a a willing slave. Rome had a lot of slaves. This was a very kind of common practice. They would have understood that relationship and and the fact that Paul voluntarily, you know, called himself a slave would have spoken volumes. He, he uh, Paul says that he's called to be an apostle. Um, so this is one with, with you know sent with authority. Um, back then, that term was used kind of as, as like a diplomat or, or an emissary, right? So someone who speaks on, on behalf of someone else. And, and he says he's set apart, so Paul has been called to do this. And, I mean, scholars have unpacked those uh, a lot. But, you know, for the Roman audience, you know, these three words would have, would have just been, carried a lot of weight. And then Paul um, talks about Jesus and in many ways his relationship with Jesus um, and the significance of that, Jesus is the one spoken of by the prophets. He is the physical descendant from King David, and the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead, you know, proving, uh, proving that he is the, the Son of God. He carries on, I won't read it, in the next section, verses 8 to 15, um, he, just how he has longed to come to Rome. And in many ways, I think these would be endearing comments, because he talks about, you know, just... You know, even in my hometown, way across the country, I have heard about you. I pray for you guys regularly. Uh, I have wanted to come to visit you for a really long time. So, the, you know, it's just 
uh, it's comments that would be very uh, endearing to the listener. And then it's kind of neat if you look down verses 14, 15, and 16. Paul articulates three things. He says, I am under obligation. And, and, and not a, an obligation that someone else was forcing him to, but he was just, he, you know, his calling says, I need to do this. I need to bring the gospel to you. So he says, I'm under obligation. Uh, some translations might say, I'm a debtor, both to Greeks and barbarians. Um, he says, I am eager. I am, I am ready. And then he says, and I am not ashamed. If I were to give you a key verse for today, and really for the next couple weeks, I would give you a Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, because that's really kind of the summary of the first three chapters. If I were to give you a key verse for the whole book of Romans, though, I think it might be verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith um, for faith, as it is written, the righteousness shall live by faith. After that, Paul makes a pretty drastic shift. Am I using this one or this one? Pulpit? All right. Paul makes a pretty drastic shift uh, in the next verse. Um, and we really start to get into it. And he begins with this this phrase, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So Paul has, has spent the first part giving an intro, and then he just jumps right in. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Strong terms. Uncomfortable topic. But an important topic, because as we've said before, the more we understand wrath, the more we appreciate and the more we understand the impact of grace. Sometimes when you and I get angry, it's because, you know, our, our patience is gone and we've, we've had enough and, and, you know, so we snap and there's, there's, you know, there's kind of this sense that, you know, for a moment we just kind of lost control and, and just kind of burst forth and, and said something or did something. We do not get that from God, right? God does not lose control of, of his emotions like we do. God's wrath is perfect. It is justified. It is, it is in proportion. You'd almost say it's calculated. Like there's, there's not this loss of control like, like what you and I may experience. Talking about God's wrath is initially seen as mean or cruel. God's wrath implies that I have done something wrong. It implies that I'm not perfect, just the way that I am. Uh, a very popular narrative we see today is just that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm perfect, or, you know, be, be you, be, the, be loyal to the, the true you, and you're great just as you are, and I just need to get back to that true inner self, and then all my problems will go away. And God's wrath flies in the face of all that because it says you're bad, you're not perfect, you're a sinner, you need to change some stuff, you've done some wrong things, and you've done some wrong things with horrible consequences. 
our, our default condition is actually one of living in darkness and living under the wrath of God. I think in our society, we've really developed a wrong view of hell and, and really based kind of uh, probably more on stories and movies and that kind of thing. Um, in, in society today, you know, we tend to think of hell as, you know, the devil's playground and that, you know, hell is this place where the devil rules and, you know, hell is Satan's kingdom and, and he decides what goes on there and, you know, he's in control of hell. Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus is speaking. And in summary, he says, God built hell as a prison for Satan and his demons. So hell isn't the place where, where it's like Satan's playground. Hell is a prison where Satan gets locked away in solitary confinement. Like that's, that's hell. And, and, and the main view is that people who reject Christ are also locked up there for all eternity. And as we understand it uh, from Scripture, it is horrible beyond comprehension. Which is why warning people about hell is actually a gracious act of love. Again, remember... Paul is building to the good part, right? Where, where Jesus took the punishment on our behalf, and so we don't have to, you know, suffer like that, and we can spend eternity. But, but Paul first has to get us to understand how bad things are, how bad things could be, so that he can tell us how good things can be in Jesus. If a tornado was coming straight for your house, the loving thing I do is I either call you immediately, and if I'm not able to get a hold of you, I run to your house and I beat on the door until someone answers. And if I knew about the tornado and I failed to do anything, you would actually scorn and hate me for my inaction in saving you. That is love. Warning people about God's wrath is one of the most loving things you can do. Paul proceeds to list a number of sins. It's an impressive list. I, I, I'm going to try to just kind of blitz through these here. Paul names ungodliness, unrighteousness, suppressing the truth. Uh, he names uh, what can be known about God is plain to them. Um, uh, he says they are without excuse. They knew God. They did not honor God or give thanks to him. Futile in their thinking, foolish hearts, claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, lust of their hearts to impurity, dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, dishonorable passions, uh, women exchanged natural relations for those contrary to nature, men did likewise consumed with passion for one another, shameless acts, um, debased mind, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
So it's a pretty good list. He's, like, he's pretty thorough. Like, we, we've covered a lot of ground there. He, he kind of seems to break it up into three sections. Um, if you have your Bibles, if you look at verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28, uh, in each one, Paul opens it by saying, God gave them up. Or uh, different translations may, may read differently. But, but, he, seemed, but he, he, he starts each of those, Therefore, God gave them up. For this reason, God gave them up. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. And, you know, one of the questions is, well, I mean, is there some, I mean, aside from referencing earlier verses, I mean, is there some kind of strategy or flow? Or, I mean, are they building on, on one another? Um, it, it doesn't appear so. It, 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 we think that it's just a long list and he just broke it up uh, in, into three different groupings. Um, if there is uh, some kind of a sequence, it, it's kind of hard to, to figure out. But, but what do we even just do with this idea that God gave them up? Like that, I mean, that's even just a peculiar wording in and of itself, and yet we have it three times. And it seems to be that there's this sense that humanity was, was so determined, so determined to do things their way, so determined to just ignore God, worship other things, just, you know, stiff-arm God, walk away from God, That finally God just let them have their way. And we get this sense, or it, it kind of seems to imply that, you know, in his compassion, God was trying to, to restrain them from going too far in their sin, and they were just so determined about it that, that finally God just released them to pursue the fullness of their evil desires. And so they did, and they just went for it full steam ahead. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Lots in there, I would point out, the lie is idolatry. So, so people who are worshiping something other than God. The, the specific example, you know, is people who worship the created thing rather than the one who created it. Which, I mean, really all things were made by God, so it really forms to any form of idolatry. In, in North American Christianity, or, or in North American culture, I don't think we do this in, in a strong, overt way, right? Like, I mean, I'm not aware of anyone after church headed down to the local, you know, chicken shrine to butcher a chicken and a pig to the whatever idol chick you know um but i i do think that it, it can slip in, in in subtle ways ways that we don't even realize that that we're doing and and kind of a couple ways to just kind of self-evaluate on that is it, one question is to ask what gets the final decision in my life the final decision like the ultimate sort of trump card and whether or not i do or don't do what gets final authority to make decisions in my life? I mean, is it the calendar? Is it the checkbook? Is it, is it social pressure? Is it job? Is it pursuing recreation? Is it kids or, or kids' activities, right? Like, like, what has the authority to trump all else in my life? Because whatever that is, that's in many ways your functional God. 
Another way to, to self-evaluate, and I, I, I hate this, I, well, I, I find this statement very uncomfortable. I've shared it with you before, um, but just this idea that what you think about most is what you worship. I find that incredibly uncomfortable, so I share it with you so you can join me in my discomfort. I don't think there's a verse that necessarily says that, but at the same time when I hear it, it's just like, ugh. There might be some truth in that. What you think about most is what you worship. Verse 26. So now we're on the the second section. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Uh, For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. There's multiple sections of scripture uh, that form the basis for our view that marriage should be between one man and one woman, and that this is how God designed things. And that when we step outside of that, we are doing something contrary to to God's will and and to God's design. And so in this passage, Paul highlights uh, the gay lifestyle, and um, I'm not sure, maybe that was very unique to to them, I, I don't know. Um, we always want to be loving and kind with people. It's always important, I believe, to hear people's stories. I think there's incredible power in hearing people's stories and, and where they're coming from and their life journey. Uh, but if they want to know, then yeah. Like, I mean, this is, this is where we stand. 2016, Ministry of Education, British Columbia, required that all schools incorporate a SOGI curriculum sexual orientation and gender identity. It was kind of under the, the banner of the anti-bullying thing. Um, and I would describe it, others may describe it differently, I would describe it as a very, very aggressive pro-LGBTQ um, like curriculum. It was required to be taught in all schools, I think maybe all grades, like I mean it was, broke, it was kind of spread out. Uh, it has since spread to other provinces as well. And, I mean, there was nothing that the local school boards could do about it. I mean, the Ministry of Education said this is to be taught in, in, all, in all schools. I'm not sure how uh, there's a couple of private Christian schools. I'm not sure if they were able to, to get out of that or if law required them to teach it as, as well, too. Um, very much based on a transgender worldview. And so the curriculum teaches that, you know, I mean, biologically you're one way, but, you know, kind of mentally or, or emotionally, you know, one way— um, and then, you know, whether or not you're male or female, whether or not you're attracted to male or female, like, that's all a sliding scale, and that can be just kind of wherever on, on any given day, and, and, you know, you can choose. Someone I used to work with in Canada um, was able to legally change their birth certificate to the other gender um, because they now self-identify as the other gender. And so now they have legal proof that, that this is their, their, new, their new gender. And so I share that simply to say that this is the dominant worldview. Like, without question, this is the dominant worldview. And if you oppose it, society will lash out at you. And, I mean, we don't want to hide what we believe, but just be prepared that, you know, this is a worldview and, and that we are uh, in the minority. Um, I have a pastor friend who has uh, mentioned oh, once or twice now um, you know, he, so I'm 42, and he said, you and I are young enough, you and I are young enough that someday we will be arrested for speaking out against gay marriage. 
from the pulpit. It's like, you know, I watched the last couple of years and I go, yeah, I, you, you're probably onto something. Verse 28, kind of the third section. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They knew God's righteousness decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I do find it a bit humorous that in the middle of this very graphic list, we have disobedient parents. So children, take note. This applies to you as well. Respect mom and dad. If someone consumes too much alcohol or if they uh, consume certain drugs or, or, or too many drugs or that kind of thing, right, the, the mind just, the mind doesn't work right, right? I mean, it's just, it, it, it actually, it, it alters the mind enough that the person actually becomes incapable of proper function. That's what Paul is implying here. When, when Paul writes, God gave them up, to a debased mind, and that's how it reads in the SV. This is a mind that has so willingly surrendered itself to sin that it is simply no longer capable of making God-honoring decisions, right? I mean, the, the capacity for goodness is simply, like, not there. Like, it's not available, and that's why some people can be so very, very evil with just no regret and, and no remorse. And perhaps, you know, you think, well, you know, we can maybe we can have a fair, logical, honest, polite conversation. And we can just debate the facts of the situation. But, but for the debased mind, like, that simply isn't an option. Like, that, that won't happen. That's, that's not there. Now, Jesus can fix that. We know that. Man-made methodologies won't. It, it, it's too far gone. So need Jesus, have to have Jesus. Okay? So that's coming up in a couple chapters later. <laughs> that last line. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Sometimes I watch people on TV, whether it be celebrities or politicians, and part of me goes, how does someone get in front of others and celebrate and cheer and, and encourage this idea that a woman can kill her own child? Like, where have we gone as a society that, like, we're celebrating that and cheering for that and clapping for that? Verse 28 and verse 32 tell me how we got there. If you want to understand a lot of our world today, Romans 1 and, pro and Romans 2 and part of Romans 3. Like, that's just, that's context for humanity when humanity is left to, to its own devices. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We see it tonight when we go home and watch the news. 
a sermon will sometimes have very practical, um, like a tangible application, right? Where it's go and do this thing and God bless you and amen, okay? Sometimes, though, a sermon has what's called a worldview application. And those can actually be more important and, and more in- impactful because the application is actually now that we see the world differently. We, we see it more clearly, we see it more honestly, and we see it through the lens of, of Scripture. Today is a worldview application. Much of Romans will be worldview application. We are learning to see our world more clearly and with more truth through the lens of Scripture and as God views our, our world. So I want you to be aware of your sin. I want you to know how bad your sin is. It's very bad. I want you to see the sin in the world and, and not try to, to brush it away or downplay it, but just understand how bad and how hopeless it is. Because eventually, we're going to talk about Jesus. And to the extent that we understand the hopelessness will be the extent that we appreciate the hope. But so for the next few weeks, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray, and then after that, you guys are dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth, even when it's really, really uncomfortable. And Lord, we thank you um, for inspiring Paul to, to write to the Romans. We thank you for that. And Lord, this morning, we first of all, we just want to sit before you with open hands, Lord, and understand clearly our own sin. We're not going to stay there. We, we are going to move to hope in Jesus, but for right now, just help us understand our own sin. Highlight it for us. Illuminate it for us. Um, not to the point of, of, of um, uh, breaking us per se, but just so that, that to deepen our gratitude in your grace and your truth and in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that uh, in a certain way that we would understand the hopelessness of a world when left to its own devices so we can understand the hope that we have in Jesus. God, for all those here, I pray that you would watch over them, that you would guide them, that you would guard their hearts and their minds this week, that you would protect them, that you would set up divine appointments where they can be uh, encouraged uh, and encourage one another, Lord, and that in many ways that this would be a good week where we fall more in love with you, where we live missionally in our own community and and where we... um, live as church, Lord, recognizing that church is more than just a time where we meet, but it is the people of Christ fulfilling the mission of Christ. Thank you for this morning. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care, and God bless.